I'm Mindy Todd. Welcome to The Point. It's been almost 30 years since a hurricane hit our region. When Bob came ashore in Rhode Island in 1991, it was a Category 2 storm, which sounds tame in comparison to the Category 3 and 4 storms we've seen in recent decades. Yet even a Category 1 storm can wreak havoc on coastal communities. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy, a Category 1 storm, inundated Long Island, New York City, and New Jersey with storm surge and strong winds. Communities are still repairing damage from that storm. Meteorologists it's only a question of time before a hurricane reaches southeastern New England, and we could likely see a cluster of storms. WCAI has partnered with the Cape Cod Times to investigate the impacts of a hurricane on the Cape Islands and South Coast, how local and regional agencies are planning for such an event, and how individuals can be prepared to weather the storm. The series is titled, Are We Ready? And you can read reports in the Cape Cod Times or hear stories on our air this week. Joining us to discuss the series in more depth is news director and series editor Steve Junker. Morning, Steve. Good morning. Also with us is Patrick Cassidy, editor at the Cape Cod Times and editor for the series. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Mindy. And throughout the hour, we'll be joined by WCAI and Cape Cod Times reporters to hear more details about their stories. So I guess we should start with explaining how we came to do this series and why we're collaborating. I think there were a number of different elements that contributed to bringing this idea to the forefront. Uh, the, the storms last year, I know, were kind of a wake-up for a lot of us as we watched Harvey come down onto Texas and Irma cross Florida and Puerto Rico just get devastated by Maria. And I think that was one element that made us in the newsroom sit up and think, how vulnerable are we and, and how prepared are we for something to come? And the storms we had in March, the and, nor'easters, right? And then we had those round of winter storms. Yeah, the idea of what if it happened here um, and, and those storms in March and the nor'easters, four'easters, I think they were calling them at one point, um, really did highlight the vulnerability of some areas that didn't see the type of flooding that they saw in, in that time period uh, earlier this year, year. And as you said, combined with the massive storms that hit other parts of the country and and uh, uh, the the region uh, further south uh, that that piqued our interest as well at the Cape Cod Times, and and I think it was kind of just serendipity that we were both kind of thinking in the same direction. I think at one point we brought the the conversation up. It came up in conversation that maybe this could be a wider reported story, and we thought we'd check in with the Cape Cod Times, and you guys also kind of had it on your radar and thought it would be a great way to collaborate on our radar. <laughs> nice way to put yes, it. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so, uh, and I guess that's part of the reason why this collaboration it works so well is because it is such a big topic and there are so many you know stories you could do figuring out right, who's going to cover what how are we going to really you know bring all of these stories to light uh, so maybe talk a little bit about how this how the the paper and the radio station the how that the different mediums complement each other yeah, there was a lot of conversations back and forth, I know, between you and I, Steve, and, and I know we were looking at it and kind of had our reporters, uh, Doug Frazier and Christine Legere in particular, um, go after some stories and kind of go out and do the reporting and try and figure out what direction they were going to go in. And at the same time, having those conversations with you and you updating us on, on what your reporters were looking at and kind of figuring out where either the gaps or the overlap was, um, was something that was ongoing. Um, but as with all reporting, you don't know what you don't know until you go out and do that work. And there were stories that came about as it was done. There were ideas that we had in the beginning that kind of uh, did follow through to the end. Um, but then even as I was reading through some of the stories and preparing for today, I realized, oh, there's there's this other story here. There's this other story here that we, that we could have done. And you could always look at it that way. Um, but the amount that was covered 
uh, both on the air with your reporters and and by our reporters was was pretty uh, extensive. I mean, we could have gone in a lot of different directions, but I think we hit a lot of the the really important points. And I think we focused on complementary coverage. We really wanted to make sure that that uh, listeners and readers who kind of went from the Cape Cod Times to the radio stories and back again weren't just hearing iterations of the same story over and over, but they wove together to really create a, a, a complete coverage of the topic. And, I, and we, as you say, you always leave stories on the table and you think, oh, we could have done this or that. We still can. But, and, and we still will. I know <laughs> we will. But, uh, but this was a, a, a nice approach to try to bring concurrent coverage to a, a wide readership and listenership. Yeah. And, and in the different medium, because you guys can do things with audio that we're not necessarily focused on with print, and then we had video as well, and, and the different graphics that were involved uh, gave people a well-rounded view mm-hmm. of the topic and, and the various uh, you know, subtopics involved. Right. And I think people are going to be surprised. I know there was some, we were surprised in some of the things that we're going to uncover, and we are going to start right with Samantha Fields. Good morning, Samantha. Good morning. All right, so since the, the your your piece sort of set the scene of, of what we go back to Bob. So tell us a little bit about, about your reporting. Yeah, so I started to look at how much has changed on the Cape since the last time we were hit by a major hurricane. And as you were saying, Mindy, Bob is not even sort of close to the maximum sort of storm that we could get here on the Cape. Uh, what I heard from Jeff Donnelly, who studies hurricanes at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, is that the Cape really could well see a Category 3 hurricane, which would be significantly uh, stronger than Bob was. And so if you look back at the last time the Cape saw storms of that magnitude. It was closer to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when there were sort of a string of storms back to back over a relatively short period of time. Um, And since that time, the population on the Cape has increased almost tenfold. That's amazing. It is incredible. So since around the 1950s, a little bit before, we've gone up from 25,000 to 250,000 approximately. And so if you think about that, Of course, that's come along with a lot of development, too. And so that means a lot more is in harm's way now if we were to get a storm of that magnitude than would have been back in the 1950s. Um, And so to sort of get a sense of what that might look like and where there are areas that might be particularly vulnerable that have been developed since then, I took a walk in East Falmouth with Greg Berman, who's a coastal processes specialist. And uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of that. So we are kind of in between Green Pond and Grape Pond in Falmouth. Berman is a coastal processes specialist on the Cape, and he's showing me how much of this narrow peninsula could be flooded in a 100-year storm, like a Category 3 hurricane. Right now we're in the flood zone, and we could just walk up kind of to the head of where the waters will reach and then work our way down towards the ocean. All right, I'll follow you. All righty. We walk just a little way, and the street curves, and it looks like we could be in almost any suburban town in Massachusetts. Tree-lined streets and single-family homes with garages and lawns. Our first stop is on a corner that's in the flood zone, but just barely. Here, Berman says, the water would be lapping at our toes. So we'd pretty much be at the shoreline of Nantucket Sound during the storm right now. And we're pretty far in. Right, so this is over a half a mile landward. As we walk that half a mile down toward the ocean, the hypothetical water rises fast, even after just a couple of blocks. So now we're getting flooded about a foot, so maybe halfway up your calf kind of thing. All of this, of course, is only in a major storm, and only if the FEMA flood maps bear out. But it's striking. In just this one neighborhood of Falmouth, more than 400 homes are in the flood zone including many that are not even right along the water. 
One of the reasons that these areas of land in this spot are so vulnerable is because they're so low and they rise so gently that it doesn't take as much water to flood a very large horizontal area. I, I found that piece. That was so, so surprising to me. When you get to the shore, it's 16 feet underwater. Right, by the time you get to Nantucket Sound. Yeah, yep. which is crazy. And so that, this, I think, is a surprise to a lot of people who don't think that they're in the flood. You know, you're not playing, playing right. fl- flood insurance. You can't see like me, the water a mile in, yep. I don't see the water. But you could be vulnerable. You're a lot closer to the water in a lot of these places along the Cape where we've built than you think. Um, one thing that Greg was saying, too, is that depending on, you know, where you live and how far in, you know, we have all these fingers of water that go up in, you know, into salt ponds and even further up in. And that's going to convey water if there is a huge storm surge. And some places on the Cape will flood even a couple miles inland. Wow. All right. Thanks, Samantha. All right. uh, Patrick, Doug Frazier had a couple of stories. Let's first talk uh, about what it takes for a Category 3 storm to form and do we have any idea when that might happen? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no, really. And and one of the things that happened even right before the series uh, went to print and on air was uh, we heard from some local forecasters about this particular season. And the the warning where there was really, okay, we can predict, oh, there's going to be 11 named storms or something along those lines. But really, you can't re- really predict the intensity of those storms and which way they're going to go. And obviously, Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy was proof of that. That seemed to be heading our direction took a turn and and really hit the New York New Jersey area much worse and and so Doug looked at again where these storms form and how they form and and as some listeners may be aware a lot of the storms uh, that we see form off the coast of Africa and it's this uh, basically this dust and this wind that's coming off Africa blowing offshore and these are known as Cape Verde storms because they're blowing towards the islands of Cape Verde um, I happen to have lived in Cape Verde for a little bit and you really did get a sense of those storms during uh, certain parts of the season, and it was basically dust coming 400 miles or so off the coast. Mm-hmm. And what that does, it agitates the the air and kind of starts to form these thunderstorms. And those thunderstorms, uh, if they get enough energy and, and their conditions are right, and, and this year they're not exactly right for a lot of storms, uh, so to speak, um, but if they get enough energy, they start to form these these tropical cyclones that move across the Atlantic and the warm uh, water in the Atlantic adds energy to those. And by the time they start to get close to the United States, uh, they've built up this energy and they're, they're forming towards hurricanes. And then they start to speed up and you can see these storms uh, start to speed up and gain greater speeds as they start heading towards the coast. Different things can affect them. There can be shear that can kind of ruin them. Um, But if the conditions are right, they start speeding up. And if the conditions are really right or wrong, as the case may be, they start heading in our direction. And uh, the jet stream really pushes them along and and starts to increase their speed. And Doug looked at, like, the possibility of once you get to a storm that's going 60 miles an hour, um, and the speeds really affect what the outcome is going to be. You may have a Category 1 storm, and if it's going fast enough, you start to see things happen. Um, Or you may have a Category 3 storm that's going slower, but the effects could uh, really depend on other things besides the category. And that was one of the things that he found out was that, you know, uh, a lot of the experts said, 
maybe you shouldn't pay so much attention to the one through five, uh, the Saffir Simpson scale, and and you should really uh, you know focus on kind of the effects that are occurring and and look at storm surge and look at other mm-hmm. things like that. Well, that was his other story was uh, why the storm surge can be more dangerous to Cape Cod than the actual hurricane winds. Absolutely, and uh, uh, Samantha mentioned uh, the fingers of land, and one of the most uh, dramatic f- or, or of water, then one of the most dramatic fingers of water is Buzzards Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. an enormous finger mm-hmm. of water shooting up straight into the Cape Cod Canal, and that was an area uh, that has certainly been very much affected by storms of the past, um, and in particular, storms going as far back as you know, 1635 was a big one, the Great Colonial Hurricane, um, and I know uh, Jeff Donnelly, uh, who, who Samantha mentioned as well, had looked at these storms going back thousands of years to really get a sense of how many are coming into our area. But that storm surge is affected, again, by the speed of the storm, um, somewhat by the size, and and the storm pushes that storm surge ahead of it and kind of bulges the water up. And also the pressure of of the hurricane itself kind of brings the water up. And as it moves into a place like Buzzards Bay, it starts to become like a funnel, and it starts to run out of places to go. In the open ocean, the water can just dissipate into different areas. But in a place like Buzzards Bay, it starts to compound on itself and and build towards areas where it can reach that 20 feet. I mean, you mentioned the 16 Mm -hmm. feet, you know, in the 1635 storm, I think they were talking about uh, 21, 22 feet. And that's really a lot of water and can get up into those neighborhoods that you were talking about earlier. And one of the things you you don't think about that traveling water, and Samantha, we'll go back to you for a second, because when Irene came, you were working at Vermont Public Radio when Irene came up, and it was really amazing how how much water and how high it went. Right. And in Vermont, what happened was the hurricane turned into a tropical storm. It came over the land and it just sat there and it just poured rain kind of like Harvey did on Houston. Um, And it turned little streams into rivers and places flooded that you wouldn't ever, ever have expected to flood. Now, what I heard from Jeff Donnelly at Huey is that that's less likely to happen here just because we don't have rivers in quite the same way that Vermont does. The soil is sandy. There's a lot of places for it to run off. So the issues here would more likely be wind and storm surge. Mm -hmm, We are talking about our series, Are We Ready? We'll talk more after a quick break. You're listening to The Point. WCAI has partnered with the Cape Cod Times to investigate the impacts of a hurricane on the Cape Islands and South Coast and how local and regional agencies are planning for such an event and how, as individuals, we can be prepared for the storm. The series is titled, Are We Ready? In studio with me is Steve Junker, who is the... news director and editor for the series here, and Patrick Cassidy, the news editor at the Cape Cod Times. Also joining us, Catherine Ident, a reporter here at WCA. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Mindy. And 866-999-4626 is our number if you'd like to share any thoughts or questions with us. 866-999-4626. Our email address is thepoint at capeandislands.org. I remember with Hurricane Bob, the bees. Everyone talk to anybody who's here for Hurricane Bob. <laughs> that we had a lot of angry homeless bees after the hurricane, and that's the sound was chainsaws and bees. Yeah, that's <laughs> Lots true. Of people getting stung. All right, so um, when the big one comes, the Cape Towns are, will spring into action. They're they're very coordinated, and this is it's really interesting uh, how they they they're planning for something like this. Yeah, so Barnstable County uh, has a multi-agency coordination center, and that's it's kind of a one-of-a-kind type of organization, or at least in kind of Massachusetts. They they really look at the Cape as an island when it comes to emergency situations. So they put this kind of pop-up center in place with a lot of police and fire chiefs and emergency prep officials. 
cells um, so that they can respond and kind of coordinate. They're kind of like a triage center so that they can kind of keep tabs on a lot of different things that are happening in a storm, whether it be road closures to the need for shelters or any other thing that would pop up where a town might need something, they can call this coordination center and they'll help them get that wherever that needs to come from. Um, and it's 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 really kind of a, an organization too that grows and changes over time. They they they've really they debrief all the time. They drill all the time, so they really are ready to go. They have s- supplies stacked away, um, and they've learned from their mistakes. I I found it really interesting. I talked to a bunch of folks who are involved, including Dennis Deputy Fire Chief Robert Brown, who says they're always applying lessons learned, whether it's from a previous storm for the next storm, or whether they're looking at what's happened in storms elsewhere. And Brown was particularly uh, kind of impacted by Hurricane Andrew, actually, in mm-hmm. Florida in 1992, and carried that experience. He went there, carried that experience with him, and applies a lot of those concepts now. That's when I kind of really kind of dug into and really saw what really came out of that and where the downfalls were. All the major communications, whether it be cell phones and antennas and, and things like that that we use on a normal basis, were destroyed. So in order for us to survive as far as emergency management goes, we have to kind of plan on all of that stuff that we use and take for granted every single day to be gone when those big storms come in. And so that applies to communications, which I also looked at, and redundancy is key here. So not only do they use you know typical modes of communication like cell phones and the internet, but when that goes down, they have a radio system uh, that the fire and the police departments use, but then they have a network of volunteers who use shortwave radios to help communicate. They even staff... Um, shelters and they can also relay messages to them to what's called the Mac or the National Weather Service from home and I talked with Barnesville County radio operator Frank O'Laughlin about this network he oversees it and helps train folks the beauty is with our systems is a lot of people you know they can even be home with their families and still be able to participate in our little operation here to support us so they, they really have tried to think of kind of these multi-layered um, ways of communicating with each other uh, with the notion that, hey, we might be an island for a little while if we have a big storm and those bridges can't get the resources over that we may need. Yeah, comforting to know that they, no matter what happens, they'll be able to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> Dan is giving us a call from Barnstable. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, man. This is Dan Santos, well, Public hi, Works hi. Director in hi, Barnstable. Dan. Hi. Hi. Patrick, how are you? I'm good, Dan. Um, how are you? Good. A point I wanted to make um, to those listening is that uh, for government, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that we can do is practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you, the only way you're going to be able to respond in a crisis is to know how to respond without even thinking about it. And the way you do that is by practicing. So what we do in the Public Works Department in the Town of Barnstable is we have annual exercises. We have both desktop exercises where you walk through an event and you kind of talk about what's going to happen. But we also do real-world events. We create a scenario, sort of like you've seen emergency responders do it at the airport. You know, nothing yeah. takes the place of training than having you know, a situation that you, you feel is real and you're getting inputs and things are happening in real time uh, because what you can't afford to do in an emergency is to start thinking about how to respond. Right. Once you do that, you're behind the curve. Yeah, it's a you good need point, to yeah. automatically know in every situation that you can anticipate how you're going to respond, who you're going to call. So we involve 
you know, Barnesville has five fire departments, so we involve all the fire departments, the police department, the county emergency management folks, uh, public works, town manager's office, and all these people have a role in these emergencies and crises. And by talking it through, establishing relationships, establishing procedures before an actual event, you have a much greater chance of success during those events. Yeah, it's a good point, Dan. Yeah, you, you, you don't want to think about it. You just want to you want to go by, you know, what you've learned in that training. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that with us. Appreciate you calling in. Yeah, you bet. Right, also joining sure. us now is Christine Legere. She's a reporter with the Cape Cod Times. Um, and this is something I know a lot of people are worried about. Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station. Um, are, are, are we I mean, prepared for the big one? You, know, you looked into that. So, um the decommissioning is going to begin pretty soon. How, how safe is dry cask storage and how many years uh, until all the spent fuel is either in dry cask or, or is removed from the site? I mean, that's a big concern if we had a big storm right there on the edge of the, you know, water. It is. And I think, you know, right now it's in the um, its final hurricane season. So you still got the active plant and because of all the problems Pilgrim has experienced, and a lot of them have been related to operators and <clears throat> equipment breakdowns, et cetera, that uh, the public doesn't have a lot of faith in that plant. But David Lockbaum, who is the um, Director of Nuclear Safety Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he's been a pretty harsh critic of the industry at times. He's worked in all facets. He said, no, that plant uh, will be able to withstand the winds be- and the flooding and everything else because uh, the buildings where the equipment like the reactor are kept and the water safety, you know, for cooling, are um, they're, they're designed for that. And he said it was shown with Turkey Point. It was shown with Waterford during Katrina and most recently with Harvey so that... Um, we can say that there it's relatively safe. Now, once the plant shuts down, according to Lockbaum, um, that makes things a little easier because then everybody's worried about the spent fuel pool at that point, which they are now estimating if the plant is purchased by Holtec could be actually emptied into dry casks within three years, which is a pretty ambitious schedule, but that's what they're saying. But he said even when that fuel is in the casks, um, in the cask, in the pool, it is safe because, again, the pool has those concrete, you know, siding, steel lining. He said that the rods, which are there are going to be about 3,000 in there, sit at the very base of the pool, and they've got 20 to 30 uh, feet of water above them. So what happens is uh, they have time to replenish that water if necessary because the rods are cooling more than if they were in the reactor. It's like a better situation, which gives them up to 10 hours to kind of address it. Mm. So um, the difference between the pool and the dry cask, once they're all moved in, so what, three years, they expect to have them in dry cask. Mm. If we had a hurricane, are they safer in the dry cask than they would be in the pool, or are they equal? No, Nuclear Regulatory Commission says it is. It says both systems are safe, but pretty much... They're about the only ones that seem to say that, except for people who are really hooked into the industry. Um, other people say dry casks are way safer than having them up in the pool. The pool, they're really densely packed so that even, 
if they um, come in contact with each other, I think it's as little as four, could start a major fire mm. and radiation, you know, leaking all over the place. So the casks are a safer method. According to um, the industry, they've, they test those. They drop them onto stakes from 30 feet up to make sure they could handle, you know, like flying debris mm. coming at them in a major storm. Uh, they have venting systems. Uh, the, um, Dave Lockbaum again cited Fukushima and how they were on the ground level and they were submerged. And that continued the cooling, the water did. And then once the water receded, then the the air venting again came back into play so that they were safe. Then you have people like Pine Dubois, who is the executive director of the Jones River Watershed Association, very knowledgeable. And she says, well, what if those vents get clogged? And she also pictures uh, sea level rising, adding to the problem. And she's not so sure that those casks are out of danger. She mm-hmm. feels that... Um, that there could be problems. I think there are probably some other people who are, have that same concern, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a scary situation. Yes. And I think that um, uh, generators are the way those other plants survived during um, big storms because electricity is usually knocked out. And Pilgrim has a, a terrible record with the generators. Mm. And that's what they'd be relying on. So even in, I think, the storm they called Juno a few years ago, you know, it was like multiple systems breaking down. The generators did. The coolant system valves went. It was um, pretty, you know, it got pretty bad. So there's that. We're talking about our series, Are We Ready?, looking at uh, hurricanes and how they might impact our region here. 866-999-4626 is our number if you'd like to join our conversation. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is thepoint at capeandislands.org. Sarah Tan now joins us, reporter here at WCAA. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mindy. So the big question, evacuation or shelter, right? So uh, those are the two options if the big one comes, right? Uh, Yeah. Um, So my piece uh, kind of focused on the Cape's evacuation and shelter plan. Um, And it turns out this is both very simple and also very complicated. Um, A lot of people mentioned to me that the Cape is essentially an island. And so in the event of the storm or in the event of a storm, much of the Cape's plan is going to be to just shelter in place. Um, I was able to speak with some of the emergency planners on Martha's Vineyard over a lunch of meals ready to eat, which are an important part of sheltering in place. Um, And here's Gary Robinson, the emergency chair of Martha's Vineyard. But a hurricane is not going to stop at Martha's Union. It's not going to hit us and not hit Falmouth or Boston. And if that comes, you're probably dealing with a population that have to take care of several million. We're going to be way down the supply chain. So I think we teach people how to, how to shelter in place and how to take care of themselves and take care of their neighbors. They're going to be a lot better off for this island here. You know, I, I, that was something that surprised us. lots of surprises in this series. But something I don't think we really have thought about is, you know, oh, if we get hit by a hurricane, there's going to be somebody's going to come help us. But if it's a hurricane of that magnitude, it could hit Boston and other areas, you know, off Cape that have bigger populations that would get the help before we would. And getting here with the bridge, like if the bridges were down, how would you, you know, may, 
maybe the railroad bridge would survive. Who knows? But um, it's very complicated. So we have to be really ready to tough it out for a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking with different emergency planners in different places, you know, Gary Robinson of Martha's Vineyard says the vineyard needs to be able to be on its own for about 36 hours, I think they said. And for the Cape, Phil Bird of Barnstable said, I think 48 hours is Ooh. how long they're planning to have us be on our own before help can get here. And so how were those uh, meals ready to eat? Those, those Were they... Were they tasty? <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're better than expected. They're actually meant to be cooked a little bit. They come with a heating pad in the cardboard box, and they're about 1,500 calories, which is really filling. Wow. They're really supposed to be able to fill you up. They're supposed to be warm, and they're kind of supposed to keep you calm. That's the idea <clears throat> behind them. Um, and so, you know, uh, Gary, of course, is a real big fan of MREs. Um, the town of Tisbury, they, their MREs expired a few years ago, but he holds the that MREs never expire. So uh, he actually bought them from the town of Tisbury, keeps them in his basement, and he has tried every single one. You Have you tried every single one of these? You mean know, all the varieties? No, no. Um, probably most of all the, the lunch and dinner ones. The breakfast ones are pretty grim. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they last a while, right? Were they, they were 10 years old, the ones that you tried? Yeah, they were a decade old. They're Packaged really tight, and so supposedly they're safe. I haven't died yet. So. Yeah, you know, that's maybe something we ought to think about putting it, buying a few of those for our houses, right? Put them in the pantry the for station us. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we need some here. Yeah, we need some food here. I talked to Barb, who's giving us a call from South Dennis. Hi, Barb. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if there's been in place any sort of a plan to connect people who live off the coast, but you know, like upland, mid Cape. Um, people who have generators who would be willing to house people who are coastal residents and need to flee their <laughs> flee their homes. I don't know how you'd work that out, but it seems like there's a lot of us with generators yeah. that might be willing to house somebody for a weekend or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it might even be within your own neighborhood. And I, I you know, I would imagine, you know, that might be something, Barbara, you could talk to the emergency planning folks about because, you know, they're the ones that, that you know, decide when to open the shelters and which shelters to open and, you know, where you can go. Um, so that might be a, an idea, yeah. I thought it was interesting in your piece, Sarah, you were talking about how the emergency plan really calls for evacuation only in low-lying and flood-prone mm-hmm. areas. And the rest of the Cape is expected to shelter in place. Yeah, absolutely. They really very strongly urge that if you do not live in a floodplain, they really want you to just hunker down where you are. They say you're safest that way. Traffic is expected to be pretty difficult getting off the Cape. And at some point, if weather does get bad enough, they will close the bridges. Right. They didn't give me a number. but well, And the other thing with that, too, and, and Barb, this would be, you know, maybe you have some, some elderly neighbors who you know don't have generators. And that's something, you know, we could think about doing. But Barb, thanks. That's a, a great suggestion. Um, but that sheltering in place, yeah, you're, you're the, I mean, even when we have these warnings, the traffic just is horrendous. And the evacuation stuff is really a joke. I mean, and they, they do talk about how if you're in the vehicle, and the, there's still the aftermath of the storm potentially going on, or the storm's ongoing, you're in much worse condition than if you're maybe in your basement or in your house, especially if you're upland, as Barb mentioned. But I know the Cape in, in other storms that we've seen really does seem to come together. And, and people do look out for each other. I know uh, certainly, you know, in the case of people who are a little older, the senior centers, uh, you know, keep an eye on, mm-hmm. on folks and really check 
in with them and the police and fire are going around literally from house to house at times. It happened during these March storms and knocking on doors and making sure people are right. And if they need to, they pick them up and they bring them to the regional shelters, a system that's really evolved as we've talked about. All right, so um, Patrick, Cynthia uh, McCormick had a, an interesting story about the Nantucket Cottage Hospital. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were talking about the Cape being an island, and, and Martha's Vineyard was mentioned. Uh, Nantucket also is literally an island. It is Out an island. Out there. <laughs> and and uh, the hospital there, they're building a new hospital. It's 106,000 square feet, 14-bed hospital. It's going to be an improvement and larger than their, their old hospital, which I think was built in 1957. And they're, they're doing this with big storms in mind. And uh, Cindy looked at... Uh, some of this and went out there and visited and there, there are things like there's no basement in this new hospital they just said why why do it it's an area that could flood it's wasted space so they took a lot of the mechanicals uh, that go into the hospital and they put them either on the roof or on different floors um, so that they're not in that situation where they're going to be uh, flood prone and and they really said that they they built it as like two walls almost that that the hospital is made of and they built it to Miami-Dade uh, standards so down in Florida where they do get a lot more hurricanes than we do. Um, they built it as as if they were building a hospital down there. And by doing so, they, they believe that they're better prepared for, you know, the possibility of one of these big storms hitting here. So uh, that hospital, the, the building is process is ongoing, but we got to look at it and got some photos to show folks what was out there um, and, and talk to some people who weren't, you know, there at the hospital who are uh, living on the island who said it's comforting to know that's there because, again, in the event of a big storm, they may be, you know, on their own as as was just mentioned for for many days mm-hmm. uh, as other areas are, are addressed uh, sooner and so they need to be ready and they need to have medical care in place yeah as we're saying to, to get you know we're talking about it could be days before help gets to us when you think about there are no bridges to the vineyard or Nantucket and if the seas you know they don't calm down right away after the storm goes out it could be a while before you could get any kind of you know help and as them. we've seen with the Steamship Authority, even on good right. days, there, sometimes it's not can, always a ferry exactly. running. Exactly. All right, Cynthia's giving us a call from Falmouth. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Uh, uh, just to fill you in, uh, I'm a summer resident. I've been, uh, I've been coming since I was three years old, and I'm 85 now. And I've been at the same location, basically, on Falmouth Harbor, for most of that time, I'm sitting in a cottage right now. Mm-hmm. I've been here through, I was here through the 54 hurricanes, and I was here through Hurricane Bob. I have two questions for you. Okay. One of them is, I have two cats. If I have to move to someplace safer, Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave my cats here. What facilities are available for that? We got an answer for that one, Cynthia. Uh, A lot of the shelters actually do take cats, right, Sarah? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, Phil Burt of Barnstable's Emergency Planning Division says that uh, shelters all take animals now. They really Mm -hmm. do want to encourage anyone who is in a floodplain and they can't get off Cape Go to a shelter. They will and, all be open, and they and will take your any cats. animals. But bring bring food. Bring your cats their food. <laughs> yeah. right, what's your other question, Cynthia? The other question is, as I say, I've been at the same cottage right on Falmouth Harbor mm-hmm. for a very long time. And uh, I will swear in a court of law that the water has come up at least a foot in the last 50 years. Yeah. And I really believe it's closer to 18 inches. Wow. Wow. Right. Uh, this affects things. This is part of the global warming. Right. 
Yeah. And I, I presume this is being taken into account for future planning. I, I believe it is. So, Cynthia, that, thank you for the phone calls. Anybody know the answer to that? I would imagine. Uh, it, yes, yeah. it absolutely is. And in, that's, that's a large uh, amount of uh, uh, water in terms of uh, uh, increase in height. Even, even an inch, uh, they say, when you get a, a storm that comes in and there's this storm surge and it's on a high tide, if it's an astronomical high tide, it could be even worse. But even that added inch could mean the difference between, you know, a house being flooded out or an area being flooded out and not being flooded out. So every little inch counts. 18 inches uh, would be phenomenal and, and, and really a problem for a lot of areas. But planners are looking at that as they're planning things like the Nantucket Cottage Hospital and, and uh, moving police stations around, new police stations uh, and, and public safety buildings. They're taking that into account quite a bit. We'll talk more after a quick break. You're listening to The Point. We are talking about our series in partnership with the Cape Cod Times, looking at the impacts of a hurricane, a major hurricane on the Cape Islands and South Coast. And joining us now is Ping Wong, one of our reporters here. And we talked to a minute ago about Cottage Hospital in Nantucket um, building this hurricane-proof hospital. But we're, we're seeing that in houses. And that's what you looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mindy. So, um, so the thing that I was looking at that I was really interested in was that at the most fundamental level, a home is basically a shelter for us. And the really good at sheltering us from the regular events that we anticipate. You know, they're really good at sheltering us from rain, from snow, from, you know, the wind that comes. Um, But what about those events that are more rare, you know, like hurricanes? What are the features of a house that actually help our homes hold up against those? And so what I did was I visited a couple of examples of of essentially hurricane-proof homes. And one of them was this old house um, in Sandwich. It was from the 1600s. um, And it's withstood lightning strikes and, um, you know, all sorts of cycles of hurricanes and winter storms. Um, And I spoke with David Wheelock, who's the caretaker there. I mean, if you had the capability, if there was a machine big enough, you could pick this house up with a crane and start spinning it around and whip it like 300 feet away. It'd hit the ground and probably be in one piece. (laughs) I don't think it would break. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, hurricane-proof, is there such a thing? So there are a couple of ways that we've certainly worked to make our homes hurricane resistant, you yeah. know. So. That sounds more more, more, more likely. Resistant, yeah, not absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the thing about the Wing Fort House, one of the reasons that it's been standing for over 300 years, you can hear in David's voice, is pride in the way that it's built. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of built with these big timber logs. You know, uh, these were trees that were in the area um, at the time it was built in the 1600s. It was renovated in the 1700s. And it's just built in a really sturdy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the old houses were just sort of built really sturdily and sighted away from the water. And that was sort of how we resisted hurricanes back in the day. So we should be okay here in our building here in WCAI. This was an old sea captain's house, right? 1840s, yeah, that's right. And it's been sitting, yeah. We're up a little bit high. We, 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 maybe we'll have to, we'll see. Oh, right? We'll be flood resistant. <laughs> we'll be wind resistant. We'll yeah. see how that goes. Yeah. Right, Thanks for that. Uh, Christine Legers, let's bring you back into the conversation. You also looked at um, rebuilding and a look at FEMA's insurance and why the Cape appears to be underinsured for a hurricane event. Uh, yes, according to Shannon Jarbeau, who is um, kind of the big expert on the Cape, she was hired by the uh, Cape Cod Cooperative Extension, um, and she says 35% of the Cape has this flood insurance under the National Flood Insurance Program, which is a really low figure when you think of how many homes are on the floodplain. Mm-hmm. So she said people avoid it 
because it could be costly with the premiums. And that's kind of the big reason. And they prefer to kind of self-insure, saying, I'm saving these premiums year after year, and then I will uh, be able to handle a big expense. Mm, that expense could be bigger than what we're, we're thinking, though. I know yes. a lot of times, even just in your own home insurance, I mean, we've seen our wind deductibles go through the roof, and we've, we've talked many times about the, them basing it on, like, the Florida hurricane models, which, of course, are very different than, than what we have here. So even if we're not in the floodplain, we might want to take a closer look at our insurance policies and see what's actually covered and what rebuilding would actually cost. Yes. Uh, the National Flood Insurance Program, and it's kind of her job to get communities into this community rating system program, which will um, give discounts to the property owners in town on their mm -hmm. national flood insurance policies. But um, she said that that can save considerable amounts of money for these people, um, you know, 10 to 15 percent on their policies. Oh, good. I kind of lost my okay. That's okay. That's all right. All right. So let's bring uh, Haley Vega <clears throat> into the conversation now. Hi, Haley. Hi, Mindy. Okay. Are you ready? We're, we're, you you looked at us as individuals. Are we ready? What was the answer? <laughs> um, I think Maybe? that, you know, we're getting there. And I think that preparing and having a plan is a big part of it. And one thing that people are doing right now, speaking of insurance, is taking down trees mm. um, to get their homes ready. Because I talked to insurance agents, um, I talked to hurricane experts, a lot of people said that the biggest danger is downed trees. And so you talked to Matt Mitko, who's an expert tree climber. He and, is. And uh, he says many people have the trees fall down. Many on this, this winter storm had people, people had their trees falling down. And of course, hurricane season's always bad too because the trees are full of leaves. When we get those kind of storms, or even the remnants of a hurricane that gets downgraded into a tropical storm, um, they, they can be ferocious and cause tons of damage. Ooh. <laughs> that was a thud. Uh, so, and uh, did he tell you are there different types of trees that are more vulnerable than others? So basically, all trees can cause a hazard: dead, alive. Um, as long as they're in striking distance of your home, you should be aware of them and call in an arborist to talk about what to do. But white pines, especially those big trees with pines and huge branches and leafy trees, are especially mm -hmm. dangerous because the wind just picks them right up. Right, and some I guess with some with more shallow roots probably would be of a more of an impact. But yeah, if you can talk to an arborist. I, I can hear people going, "Wait, take down all the trees? We don't take." But you can plant other trees, smaller trees, or uh, you know maybe take out the really big ones that might be a danger to falling on your house and replace them with something else. Right, yeah. And I think that that's the biggest thing about bringing someone in because, you know, Matt has talked about how he really wants to help people coexist with their trees. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want everyone to take, take down, down all, all their the trees. trees. Yeah. yeah. All right, so And then the Orleans Council on Aging organized a panel on emergency preparedness last month, right? And they talked about how to get ready for hurricane season? Right, yeah. They were... They were nervous because a lot of people weren't prepared in the last winter storms. People were kind of caught off guard. So they wanted to bring in some AmeriCorps volunteers who were working with the county on emergency preparedness to kind of talk through what people can do. And those volunteers started this as kind of a side project, and it became their capstone assignment of the year because there was just such a need and there was so much to talk about. So that was really helpful, and people left feeling more prepared. And you talked to Barbara O'Connor, 77 years old, and she lives in Orleans. Good afternoon, everybody. 
Thank you for coming and taking time out of a beautiful summer afternoon to be with us to um, help you be prepared. There were refreshments, but actually they were practically ignored because what was going on was that interesting. People were really intent on, on learning you know, what they could do because I think we all got a little taken aback by this past winter. So we have to be ready, and that's, you know, at this age, you want to be ready. All right, so Haley, was, does Barbara feel ready now? She does. She feels more prepared. She has all the resources that were at the panel by her phone with the important phone numbers. She's going to get a generator. Um, yeah, she feels ready, and she feels like going through the steps of thinking, what am I going to do in a storm was really helpful. All right. All right. Thanks, Haley. Um, Patrick, Colleen uh, Cronin had a, a, a piece also on what you can do to be more prepared, and that's different for different people. Yeah, Colleen's an intern with the Cape Cod Times, and her and Taryn Penna, another intern with the Times, looked at this and looked at what you literally should have on your person or in your car and ready to go. And they talked to the Red Cross, and they talked to folks who are are looking at what's needed. You know, some of it may seem obvious, but unless you get it ready ahead of time, then you're really in a scramble. And and running to the grocery store in the days before a storm is just not the way to do it, is what they said. Um, but but again, this is water, for for instance. And, you know, one of the things that they said is you really should have a gallon of water a day per person. So they kind of did the math. And for a family of four, you're talking about for three days, uh, I think, 12 gallons of water. So you you have to look at that, have it ready. And uh, I think Hillary Green with the uh, American Red Cross here on the Cape and Islands said you also got to go back and check your your, your stash, if you will. And, and water evaporates, for instance. And she said she had gone back and, and her water had evaporated that she had put away. Um, so you, you have to go back and keep checking uh, what you have, making sure that you know you have medications. Uh, there's a whole list. Uh, we have a, a video on our website that shows you know what some of these things that you need to get prepared. Um, had a little fun with it, but I, I think the idea was to engage people and make them start thinking about this. And it, it may be a little daunting, is what some of the the planners said. Um, but if you tackle you know one thing every day or so, and over time you can really build up this what I call go bag and something that you have ready. It's in a safe part of your house or it's in the trunk of your car and it's ready if you have to go to the shelter and if you go to to a shelter um that go bag may be helpful at home if you're sheltering in place but if you go to a shelter you got to think about some other things like some comfortable you know blankets or pillows or things the shelters have some things but i thought one of the most interesting quotes from their uh story was it's a you know a lifeboat uh, versus uh, anything a uh, lifeboat not a cruise ship is mm-hmm. what they had said mm-hmm. uh so you have to be ready with some of those comforts from home if you want to have them with you i was gonna say was it maybe seven years it was about seven years ago the Times did a piece on how to be prepared for a hurricane, and we put together our, our hurricane, which we still have in the basement, but it reminded us, we better go down there and look and see mm-hmm. if everything is, is still there. But, you know, it's it, in as you're saying, especially if you're living in an area where floodwaters could rise up quickly, you want you to be ready to go. So you want to have that in a spot where you can just grab it and run. Absolutely. And you mentioned pet supplies before. If you go into the shelter with your pet, uh, there's a whole uh, team in place at the shelters to take care of your pets. But make sure you have your food. You make sure you have, uh, you know, things that your pets will need. And for children, activities. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's no power and the iPhones all go out or there's not not a way to recharge them, uh, certainly these days you got to keep them busy with something maybe unheard of, books or something like that. Yeah, activities. (laughs) 
Yeah, and the other thing, too, is if, if we were to have a storm while the leaves are still on the trees, going back to that, I mean, we had a lot of trees that came down in, in the March storms, and they didn't have leaves on them. Now they're much heavier and wetter, and we could mm-hmm. see a lot more damage from, from trees mm-hmm. coming down. We talk a lot about a 100-year storm, and this is actually the 80th anniversary of the 1938 storm, which was the biggest, strongest hurricane, I believe, in the last century to hit. And and even in Woods Hole, it had a 10-foot surge, and there were five deaths accounted to that Mm. storm. So almost everybody we spoke to in this series said kind of essentially we're almost overdue for a big storm, or we need to be expecting a big storm or a cluster of storms, Mm -hmm. which means... We could get one and then have another one come in a couple of years later, and and we just need to be yeah. thinking in in, a, in bigger terms. That yeah, way. that was and, and Samantha did that in, mm-hmm. in her piece. There's some if you go to our website, you can see some of the graphics of what that cluster storms looks looks like. You know, it's not like one, one all in the same year, but they're they're close and and and. Big winds. I mean, these aren't little storms. These are big storms. No. So uh, Carol in the early 50s was the last uh, Category 3, I believe, Mm. that struck the Cape. And Mm. that's 50, more than 50 years ago. We probably are due to see another one. And even a Category 1, as we were saying earlier, with the right conditions could cause a lot of problems. So being prepared for whatever it is, even if you can't predict it. Yeah, And and I think being prepared for the big, I mean, with with climate change and, you know, what's happening weather-wise, we're seeing more just intense storms in general, but we could see you know, hurricanes much larger than Category 3. <laughs> wow, that's that's one way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going home need, and getting my go bag together. to be ready is what I'm well, saying, right? And, well, Jeff Donnelly, one of the hurricane folks we spoke to in our series reporting, said that it's the climate change is a big deal. It has a big impact on this. But really, the fact is that hurricanes are going to come our way regardless, and we need to be prepared for strong hurricanes to right. come our so way. So we need to be thinking about it and being prepared for that. And we will have links to our stories and the Cape Cod Times stories at our website, capeandislands.org. Thanks to Patrick Cassidy, Steve Junker, Samantha Fields, Catherine Ident, Christine Legere, Sarah Tan, Ping Wong, and Haley Fager. Uh, and thanks for all that great work you put into the series. Appreciate it. And appreciate the uh, collaboration with the Cape Cod Times. Thank you, Mindy. Thank you. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening. The Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Jenny Junker and Dan Tridel. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. Mm-hmm.